The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and uh, with me is Ricky Herrera, uh, my producer, my co-host. Good morning, Ricky. Good morning, Vic. Good morning, everyone. How are you, man? I'm doing really good. Uh, it's uh, it's a nice Monday morning, ready to uh, discuss a plethora of uh, current events and news that's uh, that's happening all over us. I know you love the rain. Are you upset that the storms have come and gone? Well, let's just say that I'm, uh, what's that song? Uh, I'm only happy when it rains. I'm not only happy when it rains, but I'm happier. I just love the rain and I love Four Seasons. So uh, I love the sun too, but it's it's just good to have all four seasons. And uh, <laughs> the, the rain's been nice. Okay. I just, I was just curious. All right. Keep going, man. I think you wanted to talk about Britain a little bit first, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Vic, I got a big deal or no deal type of question for you because I know you are a, not, I think fan is the wrong word, but I think you have more respect for the, uh, the Royal family than I do. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> well, the idea of royalty, not necessarily the people or anything. Um, I'll, I'll <clears throat> clarify after you finish. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, it's an archaic practice that frankly has no room to exist in 2023. But I'm I'm just curious, Vic. Uh, is it? Do you think it's a big deal that there are reports that Biden will not be attending King Charles's coronation? Well, uh, I'll answer that question in a minute. First, let me just tell you how I feel about um, monarchies in general. Um, in, t- in 2023. In 2023. Um, I think there are, uh, obviously, uh, democracy is king. Uh, a republic is what should be. Now, there are uh, royal families and monarchies that have a very limited role that really uh, contribute to a nation, its culture, and that's okay. Like, I can see that being fine. I don't necessarily celebrate the British um, monarchy, considering uh, Britain has probably caused more damage to the world in the last at least 500, even before that, uh, the the colonial and imperialism of the British um, rule throughout the world, from India and Pakistan to South Africa, the Caribbean, uh, I mean, you name it. So yeah, I definitely don't celebrate that. I do follow them because, uh, you know, whether we like it or not, uh, they are sort of part of the global existence, not just the existence, but, you know, news cycle, because they do have, you know, they do have uh, an army of publicists and uh, people who who try to make sure that they are always uh, in the news, especially in the U.S. The British royal families usually, essentially, they are like publicists. They're doing PR for uh, Great Britain, 
So why wouldn't they be advertising this? Why wouldn't they use their royal family constantly to boast their palaces and their, uh, you know, their lifestyle and and their wealth and this and that? Um, so that you know, uh, I think I think there are people in the royal family that um, that have done great work, like Princess Diana, and I'm also a big fan of Prince Harry. I think he is uh, incredible. He is exceptional, and I don't say that lightly. Um, as far as President Biden not going to the coronation, no, it's it's very. I mean, I would have expected that. Um, it's common for uh, heads of state not to go to coronations uh, and even other things that are more lavish and celebratory, and just send a representative. So sometimes uh, they will send like uh, maybe first lady uh, will go. It might be that our uh, Vice President Kamala Harris would go uh, instead. And I'm guessing that that decision is made because, you know, even even though they've said that it's going to be sort of toned down, it's still a coronation. It's still very ostentatious and frivolous in a way. So uh, they probably, the White House doesn't want President Biden to be part of this sort of this grand thing when there's so much suffering happening, not just around the world, but right here in the US. So it it makes total sense. Yeah, I think for some of your your listeners and uh, including myself, who are not really uh, dialed in on that kind of stuff, I think that's uh, an interesting point. I did not I did not know that. So thank you for that, Vic. And um, I just want to clarify that I, I do know the the royal family essentially are uh, figureheads and the people of England vote to have them in place. And pay and pay their and, salaries and, and pay the, their salaries. I, I do understand that uh, that whole aspect of that. I still think it's archaic. So much <laughs> of it is. You're right. <laughs> and, and just to add to that, uh, I believe, uh, don't quote me on this because it's something I read a while back, that British taxpayers pay about 100 million pounds a year uh, to the royal family for their work, their maintenance of their dozens of estates, etc. Right. Uh, even though King Charles now the third is one of the wealthiest um, people in the world. <laughs> I mean, just the artwork uh, at Buckingham Palace is the largest collection of artwork in the world. So um, in, in private hands, not museums. So and the second thing is, uh, you know, they're supposed to the British, the royal family is supposed to not uh, meddle in politics, not have even opinions about it or express it. That that's actually a myth. It's on paper, yes, that it, but they do. Uh, one of the examples is that in 1970s, Queen Elizabeth, sort of under the undercover, uh, got Parliament to pass a law so that she could actually hide her assets. So they do, they do meddle in that politics, but it's just very sort of you know not talked about, and it's done indirectly, you know, and. Uh, you know, all of that. But of course, they tell the public, we have no opinion on, you know, anything or this and that. So, but anyways, let's, let's move on. Let's go to, <laughs> let's go to, to something that I read and I was like, really? Uh, which is that Marianne Williamson is, uh, has announced that she's going to run in 2024 for president again. Uh, for those who don't know Marion Williamson, Marion Williamson is a is a best-selling author, spiritual uh, lecturer. You know, she's a celebrity herself. 
she ran for Congress in 2016. I supported her. She ran for president in 2020. Uh, and so now she wants to run again uh, in 2024, which is, which is, I mean, in a way it's surprising, in a way it's not. The surprising part is that she did not have a good experience uh, through that campaign. She told us that, Ricky. If you remember, I interviewed her uh, about... Well, it was December of 2019 when I interviewed her in the studio at KPFK. Uh, and she just had a terrible time uh, during her campaign. And I think a lot of the press, um, you know, I I'm about to say some things that she probably wouldn't want me to say. But uh, nonetheless, I'm, I'm going to say what's truthful. And the truthful is that the press was unfair uh, to her during the campaign, how uh, somehow we think it's funny or we think that it's any less important to have someone uh, even mention spirituality uh, during a presidential campaign uh, when <laughs> or perhaps we need a lot more of it, you know, at times like this, when we have a, a lot of uh, politicians with agendas running our nation. But anyways, I was surprised, one, because of that. And but then again, you know, a lot of politicians uh, or, or a lot of public figures run for office to raise their profile so that they can then make more money from speaking engagements, uh, you know, book deals and this and that. And Marianne Williamson, um, as of 2017, <laughs> charges $40,000 to speak, uh, including, uh, and if you're, if she has to fly somewhere, uh, two uh, first class tickets and she has to stay at four star or up hotel and bring her assistant and car service and all of that. And I know that on on paper. So so that that is also at play here, too. But, you know, even though for years I had I had uh, I'd been a fan of Marianne Williamson, I'd read her books, went to her lectures and all of that. And I've interviewed her, uh, you know, here uh, and uh, and such the disappointment that I had. If you remember, Ricky, in 2019, when she came to the station, she was really uh, distraught and wasn't just, she was just had a really bad time. And I asked her, you know, how the campaign was going. And she was still a candidate at that time. And she said, uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to, you know, figure it out, like figure out what she was going to do. And which was very obvious to me, and I think to you too, that she was basically saying she was about to throw in the towel. And I immediately knew that was like a big deal that she just uh, disclosed to us. But out of respect and thinking, you know, she's sort of not in a good place and I'm not going to like uh, press her for more. I changed the topic. You know, I changed the topic. And, and after the show, I knew that if we aired it as it was after recording it, because we were pre-recording it, that that would make headlines because he was, you know, she was a presidential candidate saying that she was about to basically quit her campaign. But I knew intuitively she was going to regret that. And she did. And she sent me an email a few days later asking, asking me to cut out that section, uh, which I did. If you remember, I sent, I forwarded that to you and I said, Ricky, please, you know, let's cut this out. And we did out of respect to her. And I don't regret that. The disappointment I have with Marianne Williamson is that I thought we had a, you know, like we, I guess a bond, I want to say, or, or, or mutual respect. And I saw her as someone 
because she'd always said she was not establishment. She was uh, going to do different uh, different things in, in D.C. When I contacted her, she was one of the first people I contacted in 2020 when uh, the Republic of Artsakh was invaded by Azerbaijan and Turkey and Armenians were being slaughtered. And uh, my friend uh, Nicole and I decided to do these celebrity PSAs and have celebrities just do like a 30 second recording on their cell phones about it so so we could bring awareness to it. And we got Kim Kardashian and Serge Tankian and, you know, Sally Kirkland and Congressman Schiff, and many others that that did it. And I thought, Marianne Williamson, wow, it's a it's a shoe in. It's like, you know, of course you'll do it. And of course, she she ignored my emails and calls and everything, which was surprising because she used to like reply to my emails right away. Months later, when I confronted her about it, she said she was going to do a column about it in Newsweek. She has a column in Newsweek uh, and to do uh, an Instagram live about it, uh, which she never did. And then her answer to that was something so uh, outrageous and so, so establishment uh, that I just completely gave up on her, which is her answer was that you know, she she'd not bother to read anything at center. At center, like basically a, a massive amount of you know mass media articles and documents and such showing what those atrocities and Armenians were being uh, massacred by mercenaries and ISIS and such. She'd not bother to do any of that. She sent me an email that was like two sentences. Uh, so she called Artsakh. I was talking, you know, we're talking about Artsakh, or some people know it as Nagorno-Karabakh. She in her email she said Romania, and I thought, where's she getting Romania? We have like this email exchange that goes back like weeks, and you're calling it Romania. She goes, I talked to um, I talked to a friend in Washington D.C. and said about Romania, and he said, and I quote, it's a balancing act. And I thought, wow, wow, here we are fighting against against both both sidism, and she's saying that. Genocide against uh, a people is a balancing act. In other words, the U.S. must balance between its interests with Azerbaijan, the aggressor, and a genocidal state, and Armenians of Artsakh, which, by the way, United States hasn't done that. If anything, United States has been emboldening and facilitating uh, Azerbaijan's genocidal regime and President Aliyev. But what she said completely turned me off, and I thought, wow, here is someone who is running as an outsider, as someone who's going to do things differently, as non-establishment, giving me the most establishment, clueless, tone-deaf answer. And I just said, okay, I'm done. Like, So anyhow, I just wanted to get that out because when I saw her, I don't know what I saw, I think it was an article about you know her announcing her, she's going to run. I thought, wow, like, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's it's uh, it's astounding. But uh, let's let's move on. Let's talk. You want you want to talk about uh, uh, freedom cities, Trump's freedom cities. <laughs> so, Vic, on um on Friday, President Trump, uh, President Trump, former President Donald Trump spoke, and on Friday he proposed building up to ten futuristic freedom cities on federal land. Uh, Part of a plan that the 2024 presidential hopeful uh, said would create a new American future 
in a country that has lost its boldness. And uh, he also added one of the other things that stood out in this interview is that uh, commuters would get around in flying cars. So this is a quote from Trump, quote, I want to ensure that America, not China, leads this revolution in air mobility. He said he would he wants to launch a contest to charter up to 10 freedom cities, roughly the size of Washington, D.C. The last quote I'll relay uh, will actually build new cities in our country again, end quote. What do you think he means by this? Well, here's the thing. So first, let me just say that we always have to look forward uh, in technology and uh, and especially in resolving the challenges we have, whether it's, you know, traffic or congestion or whatnot. And it's it's good to be uh, focused on the U.S. being at the cutting edge of technology and all of that. So if in terms of that, uh, I don't see any you know, any criticism of if if that's what he's going with. However, I'm surprised that, uh, you know, something like this, which to me is not, you know, top 10 <laughs> topics that a presidential hopeful should have, uh, that he's made it such a big deal. So it seems like it's, it's kind of a PR stunt, which is uh, talking to his base, saying, you know, I'm going to do something dynamic and I'm going to take you to the future and all of that. So it's a little gimmicky, you know what I mean? Yes, uh, this is a this is a, a video Trump and his his right. people released released themselves on Friday, uh, right. essentially outlining uh, urban development and yeah. <laughs> the Again, transportation. I, I, I don't I don't see I don't see any problem. In fact, it's a good thing any presidential candidate with would have uh, you know big visions, especially visions that are outside the box and are sort of looking into the future and given 22nd century, right? I mean, we definitely want to be uh, on top of everything. So, but the, the timing is also suspect, you know, so much of it to me is obvious that uh, since Trump has been sort of losing uh, a lot of uh, support, not not only from his uh, major donors that supported him in 2020, uh, but supporting uh, key groups, even people in his own party, um, so he's sort of, you know, trying to reinvent himself. So this is kind of a reinvention. This is, a, you know, probably a, an idea they put together with his comms team and his uh, campaign team and said, you know, let's come up with something that will make big news and headlines and sort of put you front and center uh, because there's been so much negative press out there. So that's what I think about it. But I'd like to know what you think about it. So the flying cars and and stuff like that, okay, that's whatever. What I'm more concerned about, or is the the idea of building ten freedom cities, whatever that means. Um, I'm just wondering if he's kind of falling back into old ways, the the old rhetoric. I just really don't know where he what he's well, where he's going with this. Well, I think uh, I think you have a point there. So what he's doing is, on one hand, he's saying, I'm this sort of forward-thinking, uh, 22nd century, uh, you know, let's beat the competition kind of guy. On the other hand, uh, he is pandering to his base. And pandering to his base means 
uh, using words like freedom, right? Which I think is just so silly because our freedom in the US is not compromised. <laughs> We're not under threat, right? I mean, it's just, I remember when President Bush was uh, pushing the US into war with, with uh, Iraq, trying to invade Iraq. And all the lies that the Bush administration uh, told us about weapons of mass destruction, which all of which have been debunked. Uh, it was a big lie. You know, so many people in the world, you know, and he did this. If you're, you know, if you're not with us, you're against us uh, stuff. And so many nations just sort of like fell into the coalition, quote unquote, coalition to go to uh, Iraq, which, by the way, pretty much nobody did, except for maybe Britain and Australia and a couple of other nations. France was the only nation, the major nation that stood up to Bush and said, no, you know what? The UN, the UN um, inspectors haven't found any signs of weapons of mass, uh, mass destruction. So we're just not going to join you. And so the Bush administration demonized France and started to spread this anti-France uh, and French rhetoric and then some of the right wings were saying it's no longer French fries, it's freedom fries, and it's uh, you know uh, a freedom kiss, and and it was just like just it was just hilarious and it was just insane. So this whole freedom thing, when I you know freedom cities and freedom, this just such garbage. You know, it's just garbage that he he feeds some of his base, and I mean apparently they eat it up. You know, and where are you going to get the money? So, I mean, that's a whole other thing, but yeah, I just think he's, he's, I think he's getting desperate. He's getting desperate and he want, he needs talking points. He needs to, he needs to make news on something positive because everywhere you turn, there's a, there's an investigation on him or his kids and a lawsuit and this and that. So, uh, you know, this is all uh, a way to generate, um, if not good news, but at least not bad news. Yeah, the traditional talking points you would you would think a presidential candidate would want to be at the forefront of their platform, and I haven't really heard anything um, like that so far. And this using a buzzword like freedom, it seems like he ha hasn't evolved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to say um, I want to mention uh, something about uh, it's a it's a really a positive thing. Uh, before I do that, okay. So you remember just over a month ago, I interviewed city of Irvine's vice mayor, Tammy Kim. And, uh, you know, she's, you know, she's just so gracious um, and so brilliant. Let me just take people back. So last year, the mayor of Irvine, uh, Farrakhan, made some some really tasteless, well, let's just call it what it is, arminophobic moves, uh, one of which was a video that surfaced of her on a TV show when one of her really good and close friends, a longtime Armenian genocide denier, made a joke about the Armenian genocide, uh, something to the effect of, because it was a cooking show, uh, Armenians disappearing. You know, one and a half million Armenians were massacred by Turkey in 1915. And she kind of laughed and, uh, you know, as if sort of joining in. And so when confronted, she, she sort of uh, did a non-apology and uh, didn't even denounce her friend's remarks and jokes and or distanced herself from them and all of that. It was just it was just awful. It was awful to see that the mayor of Irvine could be so racist and uh, 
Armenophobic. And so this was uh, obviously we we spoke out about it. The great leader that she is, um, Vice Mayor Tammy Kim, proposed an Armenian genocide memorial in Irvine and championed it. That plan was was approved unanimously by city council in Irvine's Great Park. And so um, it's good to talk about those great positive outcomes out of something really negative. Because we, we also have to give props to people, elected officials like Vice Mayor Tammy Kim for really um, sort of uh, championing this and making it happen. So that's uh, that's about Irvine. So now let's talk about Seth, uh, who's coming up. So I interviewed Seth Maxwell, who's the founder and CEO of uh, Legacy Youth Leadership, which is a nonprofit organization. They work with students, colleges, universities, or not. On, I mean, they have incredible initiatives and programs and such. So that's coming up. Uh, but before that, let's take a quick break. The Blunt Post with Vic. Hi, this is Robbie Krieger from The Doors, and you are listening to Fiercely Independent KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and for the world at www.kpfk.org. Support free speech and free forum radio. Peace. Donating your car or boat is an excellent way to help KPFK stay alive and on air. All you have to do is call 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-KPFK-AUTO, and we'll take care of everything. The Blunt Post with Vic. Seth Maxwell is the founder and CEO of Legacy Youth Leadership, a nonprofit organization that works to build a socially conscious and active generation of young people. Uh, Seth has spoken internationally, including at TEDx, the Global Youth Summit, and has addressed the United Nations General Assembly. Among a plethora of honors, Seth has been featured by Forbes 30 Under 30 and received a Do Something Award. Good morning, Seth. Thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thanks for being on the show and telling us about uh, Legacy Youth Leadership, uh, one of the uh, one of the organizations that you have founded, um, and uh, which is doing great work with uh, with the youth, with students. Um, so let's just get right into it. What do you guys do at uh, Legacy Youth Leadership? Yeah, so Legacy Youth Leadership is working to build better leaders uh, who are going to build a better world, honestly. So we work with predominantly high school and college students to help them develop very specific skills that we know are critical no matter what space or field of leadership you may occupy, whether it's uh, leading in a school group, in your academic career, your professional career, uh, government, non-government. So things like communication and public speaking skills, uh, but also organization and strategic planning skills. Um, things like fundraising and effective communication and mobilizing. And so it's interesting because so much of the work that we do really does focus in low-income communities. We've really made a, an emphasis to prioritize access to these programs in uh, extremely low-income communities because 
to the point you kind of brought up earlier in one of the other organizations I had worked with that I led, I founded and led a little bit ago, we worked with predominantly middle and upper income communities just because by nature of trying to fundraise from communities, that was where we went. Um, but in coaching so many students to be better fundraisers, we realized that there were all these other skills that we were teaching students and they were skills that the students who probably needed them the most were likely the students we were working with the least. And so that was really what gave birth to Legacy. That's very admirable. Uh, walk me through how this works. So is it that you go to universities or high schools and college campuses, or is it that uh, you have a center and people come to you? So we do not have a center that people come to, but it's also not exclusively that we go to high school and college campuses. Uh, the hybrid is we do go run in-person programs on high school and college campuses with schools that we partner with. Um, and so the way we've organized our two primary programs, which is our leadership program and our speaking program, is the leadership program is organized into four tracks time, money, voice, and vote. How do you as a person, a young person, use your time, your money, your voice, your vote to change the outcome of an issue that you care about? And then within each of those tracks, there are a number of different skills that we help students develop, right? The speaking program is a little bit more in depth. Uh, the voice track of the leadership program is sort of a prereq for the speaking program, but it goes much deeper for students who really want to not just perhaps organize a awareness campaign or figure out how to better communicate in a broad sense, but really how to give persuasive speeches about issues they care about to move people to act. Um, and so that's a, a little bit smaller cohort who really focus on honing a presentation about particular issues that they care about. Um, each of those programs, you know, run all year long. We have different cohorts of students and they are both in person and digital or virtual. So what I mean is they were built in such a way that if you're a student who is not at a school that we have a broader, like larger partnership with where we're going to send our staff or team to go run in-person programs, anyone can sign up to go through the programs through our online course, almost like a like masterclass, but masterclass for helping you develop these skills to go change the world, as well as the live sessions that our staffers lead each week within the individual cohort. And, and you can do so on your own, at your own pace, without being part of a group that we're at in person. However, we do also work with schools that we actually physically send our staff and teams in to go lead in-person cohorts through the same program, just in-person entirely versus that hybrid. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So even though you are, the organization is based in Los Angeles, uh, it wouldn't matter nationwide, you can still reach um, and students can really get the benefit, just do it virtually. Yeah, we, we actually have two of our education programs staffers, our full-time team members in Portugal right now, working with international students at an international school that's requested us to come run programs there for the next week. So uh, we have in-person programming happening with those students. And then also throughout the rest of the year, we've partnered with that school. They've requested that we actually run our programs with their students throughout the year. And so we're constantly working to provide mentorship to those students as they not only progress through the programs themselves, but also get to the real heart of what we want to happen, which is that as students complete these programs, how do we prove how do we say they've actually grown as communicators as organizers as fundraisers as leaders uh the space that we want them to go apply those skills 
is impact, social impact, right? So students who go through these programs, on the other side of them, they'll take action around the causes or issues they care about. Um, we've worked with several thousand students just this year already. And so we are we're pretty data driven. We constantly try to survey and ask questions of our students to make sure that we're meeting them where they're at and serve them in the way that is most impactful. And consistently time and time again, as we ask, what is the issue or what are the causes that students care about that they want us to provide them with tools to take action around as they move their way through these programs? Uh, you know, it's things like climate change, mental health, uh, but then things as well, like gender equality, racial justice and equity, homelessness, and so much more. And so once students have completed these programs, it's not just a program to sort of enrich someone or make them, you know, a better leader so they can go get a super high paying job job, although you know, we want to see students succeeding and doing really well. Uh, but the hope is that they take these skills and dig in in their local communities, in our global community, and take action around real projects that they work on as they complete these programs to go measurably improve the human rights standards, environmental quality of their local community and our world. Wow, that's a lot. Um, that's a lot. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Seth Maxwell from Legacy Youth Leadership. I want us to sort of step back and look at a bigger picture. I was uh, reading a, about a Fortune 500 executive who recently said that uh, our, our our nation, our system is failing uh, the youth um, and there's always a, a degree of disconnect between uh, people in their teens and even early 20s with the rest of the population something i feel like now that disconnect is even more than ever what do you think are some of the the biggest disconnects uh from from sort of the emerging gen x uh or z not Gen X, but Z, Y and Z, uh, and the rest. Um, what are some of the unique challenges they're facing? You mentioned some some broad uh, topics like social justice and human rights and LGBTQ, et cetera. Uh, what are we missing? What, what should we know? So, I mean, mental health far and above is perhaps the most important issue plaguing our students and young people today. Um, and this is not like a revolutionary idea. This is well known, well discussed, well studied. Uh, you know, we know that today suicide is still the second leading cause of death for young Americans between the ages of 12 and 20, um, which is staggering, right? It's 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 incredible to think about the impact that both depression and contemplation of suicide is having at scale and mass, which is a gap that seems to be getting bigger and bigger year over year. Um, we also know that, you know, 6.3 million young Americans between the ages of three and 17, um, which is so incredibly young, suffer from depression, right, or anxiety, um, which is just a staggering number just for our country alone. Um, but we know and a huge part of the driver behind the way that we built our programs and the reason that we tried to build them the way that we did is that we know when you don't just focus on improving a student's academic performance or uh, their competency in a particular subject or their success after that in you know, a particular job or career field, we know that when you actually apply students' skills 
around impact, around building a better community, serving others, right? Service as a core tenant of leadership and volunteering. There are incredible correlations between improving human rights, not only human rights standards, but also improving students' mental health. We know that young people who volunteer are 50% less likely to abuse drugs, alcohol, and cigarettes. Students who volunteer up to 10 hours in a month are much less likely to feel depressed than their counterparts who don't. Obviously, community service, but also just impact and service is critical for you know any college and university admission. And so there's tons of positive benefits. And so for us, as we thought about you know the youth development and youth leadership space is a obviously densely saturated space, right? There's tons of clubs and organizations and groups dedicated to serving young people. But we know that specifically as we work to not just build a better speaker like Toastmasters or speech and debate, or not just build a more successful student who's going to perform academically, but specifically build leaders, leaders who will lead groups of peers, students in their communities to go apply those skills and make impact, whether it's on addressing people experiencing homelessness in their local community or addressing big, broad issues like climate change and figuring out how to better advocate and raise awareness and try to mobilize around those issues. We know that the application of those skills in those spaces doesn't just help the world. It helps our young people. And so that's why really, you know, the intersect of what we're trying to do is build better leaders who will build a better world. What's your outlook? Um, you know, we're, it seems like we're always going through something, but <clears throat> definitely this year with the uh, possible economic downturn um, and the world is starting to be in a little bit more chaos than usual. What do you think is the outlook for the youth, let's just stick with the U.S., um, and also the challenges that, uh, you know, legacy youth leadership uh, has in front of it. Yeah, you know, we, we're a newer organization. We're only about four years old. Uh, you know, we've served about 10,000 students. Um, we are aggressively trying to scale because, to be perfect, perfectly candid, we don't have the capacity right now to meet the needs or demands uh, or requests of people who've asked us to come partner with their schools. So, you know, we're super fortunate. Um, you know, the National Association of Student Councils is the sort of parent or umbrella organization that, uh, you know, oversees a very decentralized network of individual state student council organizations that touch basically every education community in the country, um, you know, widely regarded as and, and rightly so as one of the largest, oldest, um, you know, youth leadership orgs in the country. Similarly, there's groups like Kiwanis and Key Club and, and so many others. Um, and really, for a long time, there's never really been a training component to those service groups, those service clubs. And so we've been really fortunate and, and grateful to build some really rich, meaningful partnerships with groups like that who have requested us to basically try to serve as many of their students as possible. Um, but they love our programs and it's really great. And we've seen huge impact, right? Like even by working in extremely low income communities, uh, students figure out how to use their time, their money, their voice, their vote. We've seen, you know, for every dollar we spend on our school programs, Programs. Students have raised $2.3 for their chosen cause or issue they care about in their local community or the world. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to be really optimistic about, even in 
in the face of what you're describing, the sort of economic downturn, not just for this year, but I think so many people have felt it already. I know I'm not unique or alone as a leader in that I think I probably wrongly assumed uh, the hardest two years of the last several years of the sort of pandemic time would have been maybe 2020, 2021. Uh, you know, we we launched Legacy in January of 2020, um, unaware of what would happen a few months later. Uh, and yet, really, last year was exponentially harder for us from a fundraising and development perspective than the first two years were. Um, and I think for so many people that were you know, connected to our org, whether individual donors, sponsors, foundations, uh, I don't think they'll, I don't think a lot of people really felt the pain or sting of inflation into recession until about last year. And it's continued, you know, as everyone has continued to feel into this year. And so even in the midst of that, which is very real, right, we are really aggressively running hard at some meaningful goals to try to gain more support to serve more students and young people. I'm still optimistic. Uh, I'm optimistic both for our students and young people and their world. And I'm optimistic just about where we're at as an organization and where we're going to go. Um, I believe, you know, for as difficult as it is, and it's important to be honest about those difficulties, there's still a lot to be super positive about, right? Uh, I know as I have conversations with dozens and dozens of students and young people who we work with, there is sometimes almost an overwhelming sense of despair or concern about the future, whether it is what seems to be irreparable, uh, you know, or an irreversible course relative to our climate, or whether it's what seems to be um, just overwhelming senses of injustice or uh, widening gaps of inequality. And yet, we know for sure in so many ways, we really are living in the most incredible time in human history. Uh, when you look at life expectancy, access to quality food, health, even equality across gender, race, sexual orientation, et cetera, for as real as the gaps are in those spaces and as real as the injustices are in those spaces. And as long as we really do have to go, which is real and great, we are also so far ahead in almost every measurable category than we were a hundred years ago in each of those spaces as a global community. And so I think that figuring out how to balance that optimism with looking honestly at where we really are and being able to sort of celebrate what is good and true and beautiful about the progress that has been made while also not using that to sort of uh, ignore or, you know, negative uh, sort of negate the reality of where we still need to go. That is the great challenge for young people today, as well as for us as an organization is how do we sort of use what everyone who has come before us has worked so hard to accomplish and point to it and celebrate it and acknowledge it honestly while also saying, yeah, but here is the reality where we need to go. Um, and I think that doing those things together is what prevents you from only focusing on uh, the very real challenges, the very real struggle, which can be overwhelming, which can contribute to that sense of despair, um, while also not just ignoring or negating the reality where we need to go by saying, oh, well, we've arrived, right? Um, and so I think it's a dance and I don't have the perfect answer as to how to do it. There are days where I feel super overwhelmed when I'm like, man, we have requests from so many schools and students who want us to come work with them. And like, we just don't have the money. We just don't have the resources. We don't have the staff to do it right where we're working to grow as fast as we can uh, or around issues that I care about. I, I think it's so easy to look at where we are when there is still uh, a, a long way to go and a particular issue of injustice and go, man, 
how are we still here? How in 2023 are we still here? How have we not solved this problem? Um, but the thing I try to practice, I guess, for myself, the thing I try to encourage our staff and our leadership and our students and our programs with is, you know, if I can breathe a little bit of encouragement into us, I think the reason that we're living through so many of the moments and movements that we're living through through today is because there really never before was truly a generation who was equipped to solve the problems that we face today in the way that this one is. And the reason we're still living through these moments and these movements and have so much left to do and so much further left to go is because there never before was truly a generation alive who could meet those moments. And the reason we're living through these moments is because if you'll just consider it, this is your moment. This is our moment um, to just step into and meet it. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Seth Maxwell from Legacy Youth Leadership. Let's talk about, you uh, mentioned resources. Uh, how do you operate? Where do you get your funding from? Yeah, there's sort of three primary buckets of people or groups that fund the work that we do. Um, a handful of really individual major donors. Our board are uh, right now 15 incredible individuals who give very large amounts of money, you know, kind of a minimum of $25,000 a year uh, to fund all of our operations, school programs, et cetera. Um, you know, they also lead a pretty robust fundraising effort outside of their own personal Where do those people come from? Because I know there are so many flip people out there but like how do you find someone that really will nurture and advocate for a youth organization i mean candidly it's been a collection of people that i've met over the last you know 15 16 years friends who i know really passionately believe in access to education for young people and development for young people particularly low-income students um and making really candid asks of them to say, hey, you know, we have a really big, bold goal of seeing students measurably develop these skills in these areas, these hard and soft skills, and also apply them to change the world. Will you give not only your money, but, you know, our, our board are not just sort of rich people. They are people who are pretty successful in their respective fields, some of whom are uh, ex excellent, you know, exceptional in finance, business, marketing. And so they really do use their skills, their acumen to help us guide where the organization goes, figure out how we tell our story, figure out how to operate better. Um, and so it's a lot of just friends that I've made throughout the years um, who I've made pretty shameless asks of uh, to support the students and the work that we're doing. Right. And then also as that group grows, you know, people in similar groups beget other people and other similar groups. And so as we look to grow and scale, we make asks of them to make introductions to their friends and uh, candidly. People like you, I have conversations with and say, hey, do you know someone who would be moved by or touched by or would resonate with the work we're trying to do with and in the lives of young people who would invest in and believe in it? Um, so I'll probably be making an ask of you soon for some for you to consider the people in your world, right? Because the stakes are super high. Um, the stakes are high in each of the issues that our students are working to address, like climate change or racial justice, uh, but they're also super high in the lives of the students themselves, right? In the lives of these young people that we work with. Um, and so trying to provide free educational supplemental programs, uh, you know, it's, it's work that we are really committed to and are gonna continue to run super hard at. 
And then there's, then there's also foundations, I'm assuming. Yeah. <clears throat> so we also work with foundations as well as corporate partners. Um, and so the interest or kind of drivers behind each of those three buckets, right? Like individuals, major donors, uh, as well as foundations and then corporate partners is all slightly different. The common through line is, you know, they all really care about students and young people that we work with. Um, you know, candidly, a lot of the brands or corporate partners we work with uh, will often partner with us. Yes, because they really care about and and want to see the impact and progress that we're making. Um, but we also are able to provide you know value back to those brands as we figure out how to celebrate the work that they're doing with our students. Um, and then similarly, foundations as well. Um, but the bulk of our support honestly comes from individuals uh, and then some corporate partners. Okay, fantastic. So um, obviously those that are listening want to get involved or uh, want to volunteer or whatnot, they can go to uh, your website if you want to tell us the website. Yeah, legacyyouthleadership.org. Um, and in terms of volunteer opportunities, you know, right now, like I said, we we are struggling a bit to keep up with demand. However, we still don't want that to keep people from reaching out and asking. So if you are a teacher, if you're an administrator, if you're a parent or even a student who want to go through one of our programs, want to get connected, um, please like reach out. You can go to our website. We have information about all of our programs, our leadership program, our speaking program. They run all year long. Um, they're free. We don't charge schools or students to go through the programs, right? So um, we want to serve as many young people as we can, uh, but definitely reach out there. If you're an old person, right? If you're an adult who is over the age of like 25, who wants to get involved and help, which I'm an old person, so don't take offense. Uh, there's so many ways you can do so, right? Um, obviously, give, right? It only costs us uh, about 100 to $200, depending on the program, to put a student through one of our programs, which is not that expensive, right? One time, not 100 bucks a month or 100 bucks a year. Um, but it's it's something that is, you know, for most people within reach, if it's not, give a dollar, give $5, like, you know, help support young people. Um, outside of that, if you work at a brand or an organization who cares about young people, um, we would love to partner and connect with you. And if you want to give your time, um, we do have opportunities throughout the year. Um, if you are a working professional across like a pretty big spectrum of industries, we, we want to connect students who are or have gone through our program with mentors in our mentoring program. So we have a training program that will train adults, old people who are, you know, working professionals who actually want to connect with an individual student in our program who's working towards a project of theirs, whether that project is addressing people experiencing homelessness, whether it's working to lead an awareness campaign around climate change or something else, we pair them with adult mentors and we've sort of trained both. Uh, and it's a pretty low level time commitment, usually about an hour a month or so uh, for a nine or 10 month period to connect with that student and help them work on a specific project to help them reach their goal. Um, and so there's there's lots of opportunities to get involved. Give us the website one more time. Yeah, legacyyouthleadership.org. Fantastic. Uh, Seth, thank you very much for uh, all the information, uh, not only just about the organization, but in general, it was very insightful. Uh, good luck to you, and uh, I hope to uh, chat with you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. promise we definitely don't take it for granted. That was Seth Maxwell, um, the founder of Legacy Youth Leadership. Thank you, Seth, for being on the show today and uh, doing you know the great work that you're doing. Uh, I appreciate your time and hope to chat with you again soon. 
Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible. And KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.